Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. about what's going on in this room because I think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future. When you introduce genetic material of research quality to a life form such as ours, which is possessed of a, a sort of, a, I hesitate to use the word, atavism, but let us say a highly aggressive nature. For example, that fellow over near the, um, I believe that's a common bat of the order Choroptera, the only mammals, I might add, capable of flight. episode 116 gremlins 2 the new batch this is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't and as always a huge welcome back to all of you wonderful amazing returning listeners and welcome all of you wonderful amazing brand new listeners to this podcast as well Basically, no matter how you got here, no matter how you found Verbal Diorama, I'm so grateful that you are here. I always like to start episodes of this podcast by just really thanking people for coming because there are a lot of movie podcasts out there that demand your ears and your brains and I'm so grateful and happy that you chose this one so thank you so much. And also a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to previous recent episodes like The Mummy Returns and Aliens and also the special bonus episode that I recently put out on Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Speaking of the Mummy Returns and Aliens, I mean, they were obviously linked by having a quite precocious child involved in the story, and arguably one child gets away with being less annoying than the other child. Alien 3 obviously dispatches with that child quite gruesomely. An Alien Resurrection, I mean, that's kind of a child in a very different sense. Obviously, this movie, Gremlins 2, kind of 
is more aimed at a family market-ish than the previous version, but this is actually the final episode of the month of September. And I have dubbed this month Sequel Temper, which is a rubbish name, I know, but just go with me on this. These are sequels to popular episodes of the podcast. This is actually a change to the originally scheduled episode, and I'm not sure if people are aware of this. I send the schedule out for patrons, so patrons always know in advance of what's coming at least a month before the start of the next month. And so patrons knew that I was going to be doing Shrek 2. And I believe I mentioned it actually in the episode on A Mummy Returns. I was doing Shrek 2. And it was a very late in the day change. Because originally I had a list of sequels that I wanted to cover for this month. And it was always a bit of a toss up between Shrek 2 and Gremlins 2. And I chose Shrek 2. Because I enjoy the movie. It's a really fun movie. I like it a lot. And I do kind of tend to lean towards animation. And then... You know, obviously Gremlins 2 has these wonderful practical puppets. I was really, really torn. But I basically posted up Shrek 2. And as it came towards the end of this month, I kept going back to Gremlins 2 and thinking how much fun Gremlins 2 would be, how much more interesting the production behind Gremlins 2 is. I was basically going to be starting preparation for Shrek 2. And it was basically the day before I was supposed to be prepping for Shrek 2, I decided, no, actually, I think I'm going to do Gremlins 2, the new batch, instead. So it was a very late-in-the-day change. And I covered Gremlins just before Christmas last year. That was a super fun episode. I had a great time doing Gremlins. So it's so much more sense to do Gremlins 2, the new batch. And I'm not saying that I'm not going to do Shrek 2 at some point, because I absolutely will do Shrek 2. And I do apologise for anyone who listened to The Mummy Returns and thought... Oh, she's doing Shrek 2. That's really cool. Um, I can't wait to listen to that. And all, undoubtedly, there will be people out there who are disappointed that Shrek 2 is no longer with us for the time being, and it has changed to Gremlins 2. But I know a lot of people are very excited that it's Gremlins 2. So I'm just going to jump straight in. I just wanted to explain that. But I'm going to jump straight in to the trailer for Gremlins 2, the new batch, because this is a sequel that decided to take the opportunity to satirise sequels and call out its own franchise's ridiculousness. And who doesn't love that? Remember the last time? We told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Having moved 
moved to New York City after the complete pandemonium in Kingston Falls. Young couple Billy and Kate now work for entrepreneurial tech mogul Daniel Clamp in his colossal Clamp Tower high-rise. Meanwhile, in Chinatown, Mr. Wing dies, leaving Gizmo orphaned before being captured by Clamp scientists. Billy discovers Gizmo in the Clamp building and rescues him before Dr. Catheter can perform experiments on the Mogwai. And once more, a splash of water spawns hordes of the mischievous gremlins that immediately start doing what they do best, wreaking havoc. We'll quickly go through the cast of this movie. Zach Galligan as Billy Peltzer, Phoebe Cates as Kate Beringer, John Glover as Daniel Clamp, Robert Prosky as Grandpa Fred, Robert Picardo as Forster, Christopher Lee as Dr. Cushing Catheter, Haviland Morris as Marla Bloodstone, Dick Miller as Murray Futterman, Jackie Joseph as Sheila Futterman, Key Luke as Mr. Wing. This movie also features cameos by Hulk Hogan, Leonard Moulton, John Astin, Henry Gibson, Jerry Goldsmith, Joe Dante, Dick Butkus and Bubba Smith. And also the voice talents of Howie Mandel as Gizmo, Tony Randall as Brain Gremlin, and Frank Welker as Mohawk. Gremlins to the New Batch was written by Charlie Haas. It was directed by Joe Dante, based on characters created by Chris Columbus. So 41 episodes ago, just before Christmas 2020, I released an episode on Joe Dante's 1984 comedy horror Gremlins. It was a really popular episode. It was super fun for me to do because it's exactly the sort of movie that I love. Practical effects, puppet, mild terror, but ultimately a lot of fun. Obviously, if you've not listened to that episode, I would highly recommend that you do. Uh, and if you have or you don't want to, because arguably these are the most different pair of sequels, then you don't have to. But otherwise, I will begin on the story of Gremlins 2. So Gremlins' success really took Warner Brothers by surprise. Although it debuted the same week as Ghostbusters and had to settle for second place that week, it was a cheap movie to make and positive word of mouth just kept Gremlins at cinemas. Gremlins would end up becoming the fourth highest grossing movie of 1984. A week after Gremlins came out, the studio contacted Joe Dante to do a sequel. Despite never fully being on board with Gremlins in the first place, the movie was making them a hell of a lot of money. And Joe Dante never planned to do a sequel. He and producer Mike Finnell worked together with several writers on several ideas, but the production of Gremlins was a harrowing affair with puppets breaking down, zero support from the studio, and while Joe Dante was delighted that his project had been vindicated in the eyes of the studio, he was exhausted after Gremlins' grueling schedule and decided that a sequel just wasn't for him. Warner Brothers continued to work on the Gremlins sequel for several years, hiring multiple writers to come up with multiple drafts, but nothing seemed to work. Notably because Warner Brothers never actually understood what Gremlins was in the first place. At that point in time, they were literally just seeing dollar signs. Joe Dante was and still is adamant that Gremlins did not need a sequel. Gremlins was never created with sequels in mind and he never wanted Gremlins to end up a studio cash grab. And that's one of the reasons why he walked away from the project completely. Warner Brothers were unsuccessful in finding a good script for a sequel. Some of the ideas that they did go through included Gremlins in Las Vegas and even Gremlins on Mars. But eventually the project just languished in development hell where it stayed for several years. So fast forward several years, Joe Dante, whose office was on the Warner Brothers lot, ran into then studio head Terry Semmel. Semmel was insistent they needed Gremlins too. And Joe Dante could do whatever he wanted, just make them a Gremlins 2. It was, to coin a phrase, an offer that Dante couldn't refuse, and enough time had passed for him to be 
nostalgic about the experience of making gremlins. Plus, technological advances meant it must be easier now, right? Semmel wanted the sequel for the following summer. Dante, again, joined up with producer Mike Finnell and together they looked for a writer. First choice was, naturally, Chris Columbus. He'd written the first movie and seemed the best bet. However, he was now a successful director in his own right. And that same year, Columbus would make history with the movie Home Alone, the highest grossing action comedy of all time, until The Hangover would come out in 2009. So Joe Dante and Mike Finnell were introduced to Charlie Haas through friend and fellow director Jonathan Kaplan and offered him to write the movie, but they were still struggling with the fact that there was literally no reason for Gremlins 2 to exist. But they kept going back to the original discussion with Terry Semmel that they could do anything they wanted. They could have complete creative control. And so they took that advice and the budget tripled that of the first movie and ran with it. They wanted to take it away from the small town setting of Kingston Falls and into the big city with all the technology that comes from being in a big city, but without the cost of shooting in the big city. Because if you're going to shoot on location in somewhere like New York, you have to close streets and shooting with puppets in a busy city is probably many movies idea of an actual nightmare. So the idea then became to contain them in one area and then to have that area be a smart building that could include lots of elements that could easily go wrong due to gremlins. And Clamp Tower was conceived. Obviously, Daniel Clamp is a play on Donald Trump, but Daniel Clamp as a character actually turned into something completely different when John Glover auditioned for the role and kind of gave him almost a naive enthusiasm and boundless energy. Kind of a lot unlike Donald Trump. The character was also originally based on Ted Turner, the media mogul who famously purchased MGM's library of films in 1986 and colourised the ones originally shot in black and white. It was thanks in part to Turner's colourisation scheme that the Library of Congress established the National Film Registry, which aims to preserve American films in their original format. Because let's be honest, why would you mess with something that's perfect just because it's black and white? You would not. Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates returned from the first movie, as did Dick Miller and Jackie Joseph, who were Billy's neighbours in Kingston Falls. Key Luke also had a small role as Mr Wing in his penultimate acting role before his death in 1991. Plans for Billy's father to appear after inventing a special waterproof costume for Gizmo so he'd never again get wet were arranged but scrapped at the last minute. And when it came to creating the new batch of Gremlins, I actually have a rare clip from the writer's room that I'm going to play for you now. Okay, guys, Gremlins 2. I'm telling you, this movie <laughs> should write itself. First one was a classic. This should be pretty straightforward. Basically, all we're doing is maintaining the integrity of the original picture. We want to do all the stuff with the water and the... Uh, can we help you? I'm sorry. Let me introduce myself. Hi, y'all. My name is Star Magic Jackson Jr. I'm the Hollywood sequel doctor. So studio just brings me in to oversee things when they about to drop a deuce. So that's why I'm here, but don't mind me. I'm just gonna be over here. Y'all do your thing. It's your movie. Okay. Uh, let's brainstorm. Adam. Uh, if it's gonna take place in an office building, I was thinking, what if uh, Gizmo gets wet from a water cooler this time? Okay, hold on a second. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to step in here just one second, sweetheart. So what's wrong with y'all? Y'all looking like a bunch of sad sacks. This 
It's G2, people. We write in Gremlins 2, it should be a party with pizza and anchovies, pineapple. Just come on, lift up the spirits. Look, okay, I'm gonna put a little bit of spice into the mixture here. What if we did this? Everybody here gets to design their own gremlin. Um, I, I don't see that the, uh, the gremlin design is broken. It's called brainstorming, not brain drizzling, sweet pea. Okay, shut your mouth for a second. Look, here's the thing. None of this is final. So you mean like, what if there was like a brainy gremlin? <laughs> a brainy gremlin. You talking about a gremlin with glasses who could talk and sing New York, New York? That's brilliant. It's in the movie done. Whoa, whoa, you, you said that nothing was final. That was before I heard the words brainy and gremlin in the same sentence together. It's done, I love it, it's in the movie next. What about a uh, spider gremlin? You mean a gremlin with eight legs and a thorax just catching pretty ladies in a web in an office building? Oh my God, it's in the movie, I love it! Next! What about a bat gremlin? You mean a gremlin with leathery wings just flying around, flip-flopping, bust through a wall, make a perfect bat symbol in the wall, get outside, get in some wet concrete, jump up on a building and just dry in place like a gargoyle gremlin? We are cooking with gas now. I love it, it's in the movie, next. Could there be a female gremlin? Lipstick, boobies, you have me, and little gremlin but JJ. I love it so much that it's not only in the movie, but it's definitely in the movie. There's no backseats on that one, no penny taxis. Yes, 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 in the movie, done! That's why we need a woman in the writer's room. Next. I don't know, a googly-eyed gremlin? But you do know, because you talk about a gremlin whose sole purpose in this film is just that he looks stupid as fuck. Yes. It can be in the movie, and it is in the movie. Done. Next. What about you, Silver Fox? Oh, electricity gremlin? You just said noun and gremlin, like you play in Mad Libs. You just like a child. You have the brain of a child. You do not have a high IQ, but you haphazardly came up with a gremlin that's just made out of bolts that is zigzagging all over the room and is done completely in animation. You a crazy person, and your idea's in the movie. Done. Next. Uh, can we put the Hulkster in it? What? You talking about putting Hulk Hogan, professional wrestler turned actor, turned cultural icon in the movie where he break the fourth wall of the movie he's in by talking to the audience. You, sir, are a raging psychopath. Don't let this town take that away from you. That's it. I don't even care anymore. We got the Hulkster in it, so it's done. I don't have any more time, so let me just recap right now. It's Brainy Gremlin, Spider Gremlin, Bat Gremlin, Lady Gremlin, Googly Eye Gremlin, Electricity Gremlin, Hulk Hogan's gonna be in the picture. I'm gonna throw in a Gremlin myself. Vegetable Gremlin, just write it up. I'm having so Why much not? fun, thank you. It's all gonna be in the actual film. Now I gotta go put some Cowboys in Back to the Future 3. Sayonara, y'all. Oops. No. Okay, you guys know that none of that is gonna be in the actual movie. Okay, okay, so that's actually a Key and Peele sketch. And it's brilliant, by the way. It's also got some of the more choice language removed, but I kind of feel like in my head, the actual chat between executives probably went very similarly. Gizmo was a must. He was the poster child of the franchise. But for the gremlins themselves, they could and would be anything they wanted. The phrase, complete creative control, ringing in their heads. So we got anything and we got everything. Electricity gremlin, bat gremlin, spider gremlin, vegetable gremlin, 
all created by drinking potions from the Clamp Science Lab. And when it came to actually creating these gremlins, the first movie relied on Chris Wallace, and he'd gone on to become a director, most notably of The Fly 2. He'd also done the effects for both The Fly and The Fly 2. And so Joe Dante turned to Academy Award winner Rick Baker. Baker had won the Academy Award for Best Makeup a record seven times from 11 nominations starting in 1981, with an American werewolf in London. He also worked on Michael Jackson's Thriller video as well. Baker was actually not interested in taking the job initially, but was convinced when Dante told him he could make the Gremlins and Mogwai more diverse and more interesting and completely different from what you see in the original movie. And the puppet technology had come on leaps and bounds in the intervening six years, as well as the lessons learned from the original movie shoot. Gremlins 2 was written and planned in such a way to accommodate for any mishaps that might happen during filming because if you're filming with mechanical puppets sometimes mishaps happen even if they're not gremlins if you know what I mean. Things like Billy holding Gizmo was incredibly difficult and time-consuming to shoot in the original movie because Zach Galligan would have to be strapped up with multiple lengths of cabling taped to his body so Gizmo could move while being held and this is part of the reason why in the sequel Gizmo is almost always carried in a box or in a cage and this meant that wiring could be hidden by things like counters and furniture rather than on Galligan's person. Gremlins 2 was very much a movie that could never have been made without the experiences of the previous movie so fresh in people's minds. Like Gremlins, this movie also includes some stop motion scenes, but noticeably more of them, such as Gizmo dancing and the back gremlin flying around New York, the only gremlin who successfully manages to get outside. Although I would argue that in this movie, there's plenty of the sunscreen injection to go around the entire gremlins because the brain gremlin actually takes a syringe from a huge vat of the stuff and injects it into back gremlin. Technically, he could have injected it into himself. He could have injected it into all of his gremlin buddies. There was also a physical mechanical back gremlin puppet, which was used for the close-ups on the New York location shoot. That was controlled by metal control rods with padded grips. The puppet was operated by two puppeteers at one time. One puppeteer would control the wings using two control rods, while another puppeteer would operate the feet using telemetry controls. The original puppet, having undergone conservation and stabilization, was put up for auction along with many, many other Rick Baker puppets on the 29th of May 2015, mounted on its original production stand. This puppet was estimated to sell at six to $8,000. It went on to sell for $9,000. And this auction also included lots of other full mechanical gremlin puppets. It included gremlin skeletons, sketches, gremlin outfits, prototypes, and a full-size gremlin costume which had been originally used as a possible method for showing the gremlins walking, but it was abandoned. Now, unfortunately, obviously, all of these items have since sold. Some fascinating stuff, not just from Gremlins 2 either, stuff from The Rocketeer, which is obviously an episode that I've done in this podcast, stuff from The Wolfman as well, lots of different things that Rick Baker's worked on. Uh, he obviously put, a, excuse the pun, job lot up for auction and probably made quite a lot of money off it too. For this movie, like the previous movie, the scenes with only human actors were shot first, with the more complicated puppet-only scenes during a seven-week break for the main cast who then returned for actor and puppet scenes, which lasted for five months, due to the larger cast of Gremlins. The scenes in New York were shot in May 1989, the Friday before Memorial Day, 
and Times Square was blocked off in every direction, which was incredibly expensive, but also incredibly busy, obviously. Production designer James Spencer had found an exterior building in New York, a foreboding modern high-rise building in Midtown, which needed the owner's permission to film outside of, which took two days. The interiors was one of the biggest sets ever built at Warner Brothers Studio at the time, were then matched up to the exteriors down to the revolving doors and window locations. The production made multiple deals with companies to have shops in the lobby of Clamp Tower, all of which functioned as actual shops with staff and working tills. That's a cash register for you American listeners. The set was essentially a double-layered mall, aka a shopping centre, with even a U-Haul on the first floor. That is the second floor for you American listeners, because so many differences between British English and American English. Shooting all of the gremlins in the Clamp building lobby turned out to be incredibly time-consuming and technical. Joe Dante enticed Matt artist Albert Whitlock out of retirement to help with the wide shots of the scene. Whitlock, who had worked with Alfred Hitchcock and Walt Disney, as well as with John Carpenter on The Thing, that's episode 48 of this podcast, sections of gremlins in the lobby had to be duplicated. They'd shoot pieces with the puppets they had, stop the camera, rewind, and move the puppets to another area and do it all over again. The gremlins melting was as huge and messy as it looks on screen too, and was a genuine slip hazard. Gremlins is well known for its self-referential meta-humour and satirisation of itself and sequels in general. It also breaks the fourth wall, which the studio were against at the time, but Dante had complete creative control. He took inspiration from Warner Brothers cartoons, which always used the gimmick of knowing that they were in a cartoon and playing with that. And I'm going to talk about the introductory cartoon shortly, But as Gremlins 2 was, in essence, a live-action cartoon, Joe Dante decided to disrupt the movie, and he did this in two ways. Inspired by a similar scene in William Castle's film The Tingler from 1959, the first way was for the theatrical release, and that consisted of a scene where the legendary Christopher Lee is on-screen detailing the horror of the building being overrun by Gremlins before the reel appears to break, and the Gremlins start to engage in shadow puppetry, before replacing the reel with a vintage nude film called Volleyball Holiday. A member of the cinema staff finds wrestler-turned-actor Hulk Hogan. Yeah, he was quite big at the time. And Hogan gives the Gremlins a stern telling off before apologising to us, the viewer. Originally, they wanted Clint Eastwood to do it, but he was off in Africa shooting a movie. Hulk Hogan, for anyone who doesn't know who Hulk Hogan was, he was basically the Dwayne Johnson of his day, except not as charismatic or prolific. Hulk Hogan would go on to star in definite non-future episodes of this podcast like Suburban Commando and Mr Nanny and apologies to Hulk Hogan fans, but he's not a very good actor. <laughs> he's, Dwayne Johnson's the only person I could think of to compare him to, but he's nothing like Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson is actually a really good actor. Anyway... <laughs> on home video 
Obviously, a scene set in a movie theatre just wouldn't make sense to home viewers. And so the scene was replaced to make it appear that the gremlins had broken the viewer's VCR. The gremlins still do the shadow puppetry and then they changed the channels, stopping on a showing of Chisholm, a John Wayne movie from 1970, which the gremlins then appear in, only to be given a stern telling off by John Wayne in the movie. Which is impressive enough because obviously John Wayne had been dead for nine years at this time and obviously they used footage from Chisholm to make John Wayne tell them off. And how they did this was the production had permission from John Wayne's son not only to use his likeness but also to use a voiceover artist who Patrick Wayne actually recommended who could mimic his late father, a guy called Chad Everett. He was brought on board to record some additional lines and the Gremlins then stopped their mischief and the VHS tape continues as planned. But even before that, as soon as the movie starts, the anarchic tone is set by the animated sequence starring Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. The sequence was written and directed by Chuck Jones, whose career at Warner Brothers started in 1933, working on Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. Jones had cameoed in Gremlins and came out of semi-retirement to work on the initial cartoon sketch. Joe Dante had remembered watching films at the cinema in the 60s, that were always preceded by an animation and he felt that the Looney Tunes characters would set the tone for this movie and tell the audience that Gremlins 2 was a completely different kettle of fish. This was a new batch. This was new. Definitely wasn't as serious as Gremlins. The original cut of the animation was longer but the studio requested it to be shortened so as not to confuse viewers thinking that they'd come into the wrong screening. Despite the complete creative control Dante had, there was always a worry that maybe they'd gone too far. Dante had it in his contract that he would preview the finished movie without studio executives. He could then trim the issues that he found before presenting it to the studio. When he did show them his final cut, they obviously had concerns. Dante admitted that they didn't like the movie any more than they liked the first one, which I guess is kind of okay. But true to their word, they agreed to go and release Gremlins 2 as it was. Steven Spielberg, who executively produced, as he did with the first movie, always sided with Dante. Spielberg had the power to veto the studio and he used it, allowing Dante to get on with making a movie that basically took the mickey out of everything and gave Dante the ability to prevent any future sequels, which hasn't quite worked out that way, but more on that later. And unlike Gremlins, which was a PG and caused a bit of a stir for being so, as I mentioned back in that episode, because Gremlins helped to create the PG-13 rating in America. And so Gremlins 2 The New Batch was released as a PG-13, despite the fact that it is considerably milder than the other movie. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So, this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And this is really scraping the barrel. But, famously... Film critic Leonard Moulton appears in this movie. He criticised the movie Gremlins. And he appears in this movie criticising the movie Gremlins before being attacked by Gremlins. Well, it turns out that, and unsurprisingly, I guess, for most people, that Leonard Moulton also harshly criticised several Keanu Reeves movies, namely Constantine. He called Constantine dreary, to put it mildly. I completely disagree with Leonard Moulton's assessment of Constantine. Not that I would, because I obviously am a huge fan of Keanu, but I think Constantine is such a better movie than a lot of people give it credit for. So, I mean, yeah, it's a terrible link between this movie and Keanu, but it was really the only thing that I could think of. And if you can think of something better, then 
please let me know. Because I think I'm going to have to start asking for help for obligatory Keanu references going forward because they are getting even harder. Maybe I do need to get the obligatory Tom Hiddleston reference sorted. Maybe that's where I need to go. But let's talk about the music. So Jerry Goldsmith not only scored the movie, but has a cameo, as I mentioned. He cameos alongside his wife. He also scored the Rambo series and used a variation of this music for when Gizmo toughens up to take on the Gremlins. Sylvester Stallone also gave his blessing for the Rambo scenes and the huge ensemble sing-song of New York, New York was claimed by Dante to be shamelessly stolen from the 1934 film Dames. When it came to the release of Gremlins 2, The New Batch, the movie was scheduled to be coming out the first week of May 1990 and the only competition at that time was the Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn movie Bird on a Wire. Gremlins 2 was scheduled to get an early start in a quite crowded cinematic summer of 1990, and then the studio changed the release date. The reason was the movie Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy was due out on the 15th of June and was potentially going to be the next big comic book movie. And I know you're probably scoffing at that now because I kind of feel like the movie Dick Tracy is not really seen as any big comic book movie. But at the time, Warner Brothers were really worried about Dick Tracy. They decided to pitch Gremlins 2 against Dick Tracy, not because they thought Gremlins would win, but because they had a record set the previous year for Batman. And the buzz around Dick Tracy meant that they were worried that Disney, because lest we forget, Dick Tracy is a Disney movie, that Disney would use Dick Tracy to outgross Batman. And so they used Gremlins 2 as a buffer to stop Dick Tracy from dominating the box office. And it worked to a degree because Dick Tracy didn't smash Batman's records. But when Gremlins 2 opened on the 15th of June, it wasn't the huge smash hit that people were expecting. Just on a side note as well, that the bat signal does appear in this movie too, which is some nice subtle foreshadowing for this assistance that this movie gave to the 1989 movie Batman. So when Gremlins 2 opened, it opened at number four in its first week. Dick Tracy was at number one. It made 14.3 million in its first week against Dick Tracy's 34.7 million. Gremlins 2 would go on to make $41.5 million domestically against a $30 million budget. Despite the box office returns not being fantastic, Joe Dante felt that he'd done what he set out to do. Gremlins 2, he states, is still his preferred Gremlins movie. He received a big payday for it. He fulfilled his contractual obligations and he had a rollicking good time doing so. Back to Leonard Moulton, just for a moment, because he actually ended up giving Gremlins 2 a more positive review than he gave the first movie. You could argue that there might have been some bias there, because he is actually in the movie, but most critics actually agreed that it was superior to the original. They enjoyed the satire, the clever gags, and appreciated the movie for its special effects and homages and parodies. Gremlins 2 was designed to never have another sequel, and thanks to its lackluster box office, any chance of that was abandoned, despite the fact that both, both Gizmo and the female gremlin, who's also called Gremlina and Greta Gremlin, depending on whom you speak to, survive the events of the movie. Greta actually partakes in a marriage ceremony with Robert Picardo's character, who just succumbs to her advances. Uh, I mean, I don't, however, think their marriage is legal, actually anywhere in the world, but that's beside the point. So in January 2013, there was talk about Warner Brothers negotiating with Steven Spielberg to reboot the franchise. And in November 2015, Zach Galligan confirmed that the third film was going to be a sequel and not a reboot. In December 2016, Galligan said that Chris Columbus 
had been aggressively working on a Gremlins 3. In a 2017 interview, Chris Columbus discussed his twisted and dark script, which was all about if the issue is actually Gizmo, then should Gizmo actually be eliminated? Which is quite a dark thing to think when it's a really cute character like Gizmo. Fast forward to November 2020, uh, Chris Columbus stated that CGI would not be used for the Gremlins and that traditional puppets and animatronics would continue to be used, which is music to my ears because any Gremlins movie should be traditional puppets and not CGI. And as of recording this episode, quite recently on September the 19th, 2021, Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai, an animated series set in 1920s Shanghai, premiered. It's already been renewed for a second season as well and stars some brilliant people. It stars Ming-Na Wen, B.D. Wong and James Hong as well. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go with that particular prequel. And obviously, if a Gremlins 3 happens with Chris Columbus, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that too. Right, let's move over to social media thoughts. So I like to find out what people think about the movies that I cover and I like to ask on social media. Um, I'm going to start with the patrons over on Patreon and we're going to start with, as always, Andy. And Andy says, Gremlins 2 could have been an easy cash grab where the events are repeated again, just in another location, maybe during the 4th of July or something. To take the concept and blow it up into a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes-esque comedy, complete with a size to the camera and meta jokes, Later to become a hallmark of most nerd films, looking at you scream, but knocks it out of the park and is one of the rare sequels to exceed its already amazing original. And I'm sure that if you're a regular listener, you don't need me to tell you, but Andy is one of the hosts of the amazing podcast Geek Salad. It's him and a bunch of really awesome people. They get together and they talk about all things geek, movies, music, TV shows, games, literally anything and everything. You absolutely should listen. I'll pop some information in the show notes. I do always like to give patrons a bit of a plug. And we have another patron comment from Derek who says, While I haven't seen it in some time, I loved it as a kid. Its wackiness and oddity is very unique. I always enjoy a sequel that does more than simply retread the same narrative beats as the original. And Derek, along with his wife Laurel, they host the amazing podcast, which is The Midnight Myth. They talk about history, mythology, philosophy, and basically how those topics seep into our popular culture. It's an absolutely fascinating podcast. Again, information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. You should absolutely listen to that podcast. And the final patron comment is from Brendan, who says, Gremlins 2 belongs in the pantheon of great comedy sequels, and the only reason it wasn't immediately recognised as so was because it was ahead of its time. Now, in a world where even the Lego movie can be genre deconstruction, Gremlins 2 stands fully revealed as brilliant satire. Not only does it playfully poke at its own mythology and the way fans pick those things apart and go meets in a way Deadpool would envy, going so far as to engineer a home video alternative to one of its most outlandish gags, but it's also a tightly written engine of clever payoffs and impish subversions. And it's just really, really, really cussing funny. Like, knows how to get big laughs out of Christopher Lee funny. And Christopher Lee is excellent in this movie as well. You would never expect him to be hilarious, but he genuinely is in this movie. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Bricked Pit, who said, John Glover is amazing as a lampoon of Trump. Every scene is layered with comedy and self-reference. The script is tight and even B-players like the Japanese tourist have character arcs. Dante did what he wanted and gave a big middle finger to the suits. 
At the Cat Film Fan said, I love Gremlins 2. It's so ridiculous and funny and has Christopher Lee in it. The new Gremlins were inspired and 10-year-old me was obsessed with doing all the Gremlin voices. And Helen actually also linked to the Key and Peele sketch in her tweet as well. At DW Lundberg said, One of the most unexpected thrills I've had in a theatre. Sometimes I think that no one enjoys making movies more than Joe Dante and Gremlins 2 breaks the fourth wall and flips our expectation to such a degree that I can practically hear him cackling on the other side of the camera. At Orland Score, MFC said, I still want to know how the Lincoln story ends. Do you though? <laughs> it's probably really sad. At With Sherman said, A sequel that was meta about its predecessor years before Lord and Millie used the same tactic with their Jump Street movies. Gremlins 2 is one of the best satires of the then emerging corporation automation culture taking hold across larger metropolitan areas. At Sequels Only said, They turn into a veggie gremlin. We reviewed this gem and interviewed three folks involved. At Danny Brown CA said, A sequel that didn't need to happen. Some spiky jokes and the New York location are the only things that stop this being a complete washout. At movie underscore drone said, A simple thought but massively underrated. At to a penny said, I'm a big fan of let's try something different when it comes to sequels. And this is probably the best example of it. It definitely doesn't have the harder horror edge of the original, but it lampoons all the tropes of sci-fi sequel. Maybe why it doesn't quite gel. But I think both the Gremlin films have incredible moments. Maybe that's why a third film has been so long in the making, because where can they go that feels like a natural progression and not forced? A reboot, a prequel, animated, anthology, there are a few routes. Moving over to Instagram, at SP underscore film viewers said, More nostalgic for this than the first, and it's a riot. Lots more unique gremlins and very much self-aware. Love it. At pod underscore appetite said, Gave me nightmares as a kid. I mean, more so than the original gremlins though. And finally, at the coolness chronicles said, A strong candidate for the greatest movie ever made. Boldly anarchic in a way that recalls the Marx Brothers at their peak and all for a silly sequel about evil puppets. No comments over on Facebook. Huge thank you to everyone for providing their thoughts on Gremlins 2 The New Batch. And just so you're aware, those little interludes from Jess, they did actually happen during my recording of the comments. Um, and to be honest, normally I either stop recording or I basically stop talking and let her do what she needs to do and then carry on after and I just thought no I'll actually keep them in the recording because she is the official gremlin of this podcast so it felt quite apt that she should disrupt the recording the way she did. Gremlins to the new batch is in many ways a total anomaly. It's not often a director gets to make a sequel that the studio is so desperate for that they will relinquish creative control. Can you imagine an MCU property going ahead without Kevin Feige's approving eye on it? This is a movie that knows it's a cash grab sequel, but makes a complete mockery out of that fact. I actually saw this movie as a child before I saw Gremlins, because my parents thought it was more appropriate, despite the lashings of Gremlin guts and occasional scares. I feel that may be the case for a lot of 80s, 90s kids as well. It successfully manages to lampoon everything about its own world and mythology, even down to the ridiculous rules of Mogwai ownership, many of which came from actual viewers themselves, and the scene in the original where Kate reminisces about the horrific revelation that her father got stuck down the chimney at Christmas, 
by letting Phoebe Cates start another story about Abraham Lincoln before yanking her out of it. There's no denying that Gremlins is a classic, and yet Gremlins 2 somehow manages to elevate itself because it knows the premise of the first movie is ridiculous, but it doesn't just stop at self-referencing and satirising itself. It takes the Hollywood sister of sequels and just throws shot after shot, while also upping the ante of its own production. They made more Gremlins, different Gremlins, when they could have just gotten away with the same creations as before. The thought that went into it might make a hilarious Key and Peele sketch, but it's also incredibly smart of them, and bold as well. The fact it's pretty much exactly the same plot as the first movie is instantly forgotten, because it's just so zany and ludicrous and meta, and it includes a parody of Donald Trump, and wait, isn't that Hulk Hogan? And it's a Warner Brothers cartoon brought to life, and the fact it was ever made at all is something of a miracle. I doubt we will ever see a sequel like this ever again, made nowadays, but I really, really hope that we do. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Gremlins 2, the new batch. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by other people by telling your friends and family about this podcast. You can also retweet or like posts on social media, or you can leave a rating or review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. That always helps as well. And if you did like specifically this episode of Gremlins 2, the new batch, You might also like episode 74, which is the original episode on Gremlins that goes into a lot of the Gremlins history and basically how Gremlins got made in the first place. It is a fascinating episode. It's also a Jess episode. Jess is my cat. She was featured in that episode because she is my Gremlin, essentially. You may have heard her in the background because when I started recording, she was asleep and I didn't want to wake her up so she could take part in this recording. And then literally 10 minutes after I started recording, she woke up and started shouting. So this is basically the trials and tribulations of podcasting when you've got a really, really noisy cat in the background. But it was a super fun episode. I'm also going to recommend episode 87, which is Josie and the Pussycats. And it is a bit of a curveball recommendation because Josie and the Pussycats is nothing like Gremlins 2, the new batch. However, It is a pretty brilliant satire on the music industry. And so if you like a movie that really doesn't take itself too seriously, and yet it really does take the mickey out of commercialism and capitalism and all of that sort of stuff, Josie and the Pussycats is absolutely wonderful. It's just a lot of fun to watch, a bit like Gremlins 2 The New Batch, so maybe not so out there. Episode 96, The Monster Squad, mainly because it's a similar horror comedy movie sort of aimed at families as well but has some very mild scares in there so if you've got children and you've sat them in front of gremlins 2 the new batch and they enjoyed it then chances are they probably would enjoy something like the monster squad as well and episode 103 the frighteners for very much a similar kind of reason the frighteners is a little bit more scary i would argue but again it's very accessible kind of scare i'm not a fan of horror Uh, (laughs) i never have been but An acceptable level of horror, something like Gremlins 2, The New Batch, or Gremlins, or The Frighteners, or The Monster Squad, or The Mummy, or have to get The Mummy in, obviously. Anything like that is is very much an acceptable level of horror for me. So I would absolutely recommend The Frighteners. It's great Michael J. Fox, it's early Peter Jackson, and it's absolutely 100% worth your time. Obviously give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know if you think I got it right. So the next episode, we're actually going to be going into October, which traditionally is kind of when podcasts talk about scarier, I was going to say scary movies. I'm not going to talk about scary movies on this podcast, but they talk about slightly scarier stuff. And so the next episode is a movie that 
I don't think many people have actually heard of. It is a very, very early James Gunn movie. It's from 2006. It's called Slither. And it's a lot of fun. It's basically about little slug-like worm things that take over a small town. It sounds completely gross. I've actually not seen it for a few years. I'm really looking forward to see it again. But it's got some great practical effect work and it's very typical James Gunn. It's got Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks. It's got a really great cast, Michael Rooker, obviously, as well. And so, yeah, it is a slightly different movie. I don't know if many podcasts are going to be covering Slither this October, but I kind of wanted to throw a little curveball out there and cover something that kind of didn't do so well when it came out, but it's seen as teetering on cult classic now. And I hope that you'll join me for that because it is a super fun movie. You can follow me and say hi if you want to. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. If you want to support the show financially, you're under no obligation, but if you do want to, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. Huge thank you as always to the patrons of this podcast, to Simon E., Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. This reminds me of the time that I got stuck in a field of Patreon. I was so scared. I was so alone. But this isn't the time to tell you that story. <laughs> I was trying to do a Phoebe Cates. I kind of need some sad music in the background, don't I? To get away with the Phoebe Cates moment. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldorama.com slash merch. It's all going to be changed and revamped and stuff very soon. If you want to get in touch with me on email, it's verbaldorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to verbaldorama.com. You can also see my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can buy copies of the magazine that I write for and also the articles that I write online. And finally, <laughs> is everybody here? Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I wanna be a part of it. New York, New York, yes, sir. These vagabond shoes are longing to stray and step around the hall a bit. New York, New York. These guys aren't bad. Incredible as it might seem, ladies and gentlemen. After their bizarre, blood curdling rampage of destruction. These strange creatures now appear to be mounting what seems to be a musical number.